and welcome to the LB School Podcast. I'm Christy Michelle, the School and Library Coordinator and resident Jane Austen lover, and today I'll be speaking to Ronnie Davis about her debut YA novel, When the Stars Lead to You, which hits shelves this November. Luminaries like Jennifer Niven are already raving about it, but I think the perfect summary comes from Rachel Stroll, a teen librarian from the Glenside Public Library District in Illinois, who says, and I quote, when the Stars Lead to You is a powerful debut about reaching for the stars and how to put yourself back together after falling apart. Deftly blending the complications of first love with an exploration of mental illness, Ronnie Davis is a bright new voice in YA that readers of today and the future are lucky to have. I couldn't say it better myself. Ronnie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Before we jump into the questions, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, I live in Chicago with my family and two kitty cats. I love collecting things I don't really need and going to Disney World and playing The Sims. Um, I'm also a yoga teacher, um, copy editor, and all kinds of good stuff. So got a full life here. It's great. When the Stars Lead to You is your debut novel. Could you tell us about how you got into writing and what it means to you? Sure. Um, so my sister and I used to make up characters and stories like for as long as I can remember. Um, I had a character, characters called like Dinks and Bomper Dinks and stuff like that. And we just make up stories about them orally and sometimes we record them on um, old-fashioned like tape recorders. Um, it didn't occur to me to start writing them down until I was 11, though, and I had a Michael Jackson notebook, and he had on a yellow vest, and I wrote a story about my friends and I in a haunted house. And I started writing, I kept writing just stories like this all through, like, junior high school. Well, back then, for us old people, it was intermediate school. Um, and I just wrote about my friends and me having all kinds of adventures and things. This also continued, like, through high school. Uh, my friends and I would do, like, self-insert fan fiction with New Kids on the Block and the uh, cast of the Mickey Mouse Club. We'd be on the phone for 13 hours, 14 hours, just making up these stories. And then um, when I got to 12th grade, somehow my English teacher got a hold of my writing, and she just really started supporting me. She encouraged me. She signed my yearbook and said that she thought I had the potential to become famous as a writer. I'm still working on that getting famous part, but I'm really excited that I'm able to publish a book. And I actually dedicated it to her because she, her words just stuck with me through these years. So I wrote stories all through college, again, more self-centered fan fiction. And it never really occurred to me that I could have a book published until the internet happened and all this information was suddenly right here at my fingertips. There was RWA and SCBWY and there was all these like query sites and how to write a query and how to get your first pages polished. I joined forums and got feedback from people on forums and they helped me improve my writing. It just really became kind of a part of me. It was my escape from, like, the day at work and from being a mom and a new mom and just cleaning up after the cats. I can't even describe what writing means to me because it's so layered. 
it means an escape when things are hard, a chance to make things the way I think they should be. I mean, at least while drafting, because when I'm drafting, everything is happy. And then I have to go back and add all the stuff all the drama. that makes my character mad. <laughs> and sometimes it's pain and tears. Sometimes it's downright magical. But the thing about writing is that I try to give it up multiple times, and I can't. It feels wrong. It's like this gut feeling like you just know you made the wrong choice and it made me feel sick and nauseated and I once I decided I don't have to stay in this having given up state and I started writing again everything felt right so I know that it's a part of my soul that it's a part of who I am and that I can't give it up so that's what it makes me it's just a, it's another part of me and it's an extension of me and what I want the world to be like or a different kind of world. So it's really been like a lifelong passion of yours, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it has been. Just always making up stories. I live in my own head, oh, about 80% of the time. <laughs> I'm always in daydreams. I'm always making up stories in my head. I see strangers and I make up stories about strangers that are crossing the street when I'm in the car my son and I just recently um, went to Disney World, and uh, I just had so much fun just, like, thinking of, like, all these families. These families are in their, like, own little kind of pods there, and it's just really interesting to think about, I wonder what their life is like, and then just going from there. And so, yeah, it's always, it's always been a thing where I've been deeply interested in people's lives and and just making up stories about how their lives go. It's probably completely wrong, but you know, it's just something that feeds my writing. Since you started writing this novel, up to it being published, have you changed as a writer, and have you changed as a reader? Definitely. Definitely changed as both. I've always loved studying the writing craft, and while pursuing publication, being able to put these things into practice has been challenging and it's been interesting and some, sometimes fun, a lot of hard work. I feel like now I'm more willing to take risks and get out of my comfort zone. Like, I, I know there are authors who really love to, like, torture their characters, and I'm not that author. I like to say, okay, you're my baby. I want to give you everything you want. So learning to create tension is, is all about, like, having them want something and making it as hard as possible for them to get it. And being able to transition into that is definitely a way that I've changed as a writer. Taking risks and putting things in that I think this will never work, because usually that's the thing. Like, if you're afraid of something, just go for it, because usually that's the thing you need to do. And then also plotting is, I've always been a panther. I've always just kind of made stories up, and now I'm trying to learn to like write a synopsis before I write the book, trying to do an outline. I always know where I want to start and where I want to end, but getting there is always the trick. So I'm figuring out how to create a roadmap, so to speak, so that I can get there and keeping it flexible so that I know that things can change along the way. But having just like general roadmap, it really helps, I think. So that's definitely how I'm changing as a writer is, I guess, getting more organized and more careful and more intentional in what I'm doing so that I'm not spending five years revising instead of, you know, just being able to draft a story and then maybe spending 
six months revising instead of years. So that's why I'm changing. As a reader, I'm finding it harder to turn off the storyteller in me because um, I'll watch, especially with a Disney movie, I'll watch it and I can usually tell when certain things are going to happen because I am so used to like getting the structure in my head and trying to apply structure to my own writing. So I know, um, for example, I watched Moana a few years ago and I said, okay, this is a hero's journey. This is going to be the part where she resists her journey. Okay, this is going to be the part where she decides not to go through with it because of something bad happening. And now here's her breakthrough. And I just, I knew when everything was going to happen. But that doesn't lessen the enjoyment for me. I just know these beats and I know what's coming. But what happens is that I find myself bracing for these things instead of being able to enjoy the story organically. So that's, I think, how I've noticed, how I've changed as a reader or as a consumer of storytelling, because I know these beats. I always find it so interesting how those two things, reading and writing, feed off of each other and influence Mm -hmm. each other. I think it's really cool. It's really interesting. And, I mean, again, like, it doesn't stop me from enjoying the book. I still, or the movie or the TV show, it just, I feel like I'm prepared for things to happen. What happens is that if there's, like, a twist that completely throws everything off, I usually really enjoy that because if I don't see it coming, that's great. But there are a few twists that have made me throw things across the room, so... (laughs) If you could describe yourself in two books, what books would those be and why? Oh, this is an awesome question. So the first book is a picture book that came out, I think, in 2005. It's called The Flower Man by Mark Ludy. I think that's how you pronounce his name. And it's this wordless picture book of a man who quietly makes the world a better place, one flower at a time. There are no words in this book. The book starts off black and white, and all the other characters are just miserable in this town and everything he touches slowly turns to color and you start to see people get happier and then at the end of the book everything's in color the town's happy and he just leaves and moves on to the next place and I want to be that kind of person who's quietly making the world a better place so that book really resonates with me just because I want to be like the flower man where I'm just kind of making a difference in a good way quietly everywhere and then I just move on to the next. And then the second book is Confessions of a Shopaholic by Sophie Kinsella. And God help me, but I love buying new things. <laughs> and especially like stationery, notebooks, bags, and Mickey Mouse stuff. But um, I don't tell lies like Becky Bloomwood, so I think that's a good thing. But definitely, I I know how she is. I get swept up in that. So yeah, those are definitely the two books that I think describe who I am to a T. I remember watching that movie. Actually, I've I, I love romantic comedies, so I've watched the movie several times. But I've never read the book. It's still on my to be read pile, on my like miles long to be read pile. Oh my goodness, you you had to get started. There's a whole series. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, and she, she's something else. And there are some times I read the book and I want to shake her. I'm like, why? Why are you like this? But then she walks into a store and she's like, I need these, need this bag. And I'm like, yeah, I, I understand. I, I get it. And like all reason just flies out the door. Are you are you a re-reader? Do you read books multiple times, or are there just certain books that you re- re-read? 
I definitely reread. I have so many favorites that I just, I've had to buy multiple copies of some books because I read them so many times they started to fall apart. I absolutely reread. And it's really hard to get rid of books. I I got rid of over a thousand books when we moved in uh, May. Wow. Which was which was hard. And we still moved like 30 boxes of books. That's to show you how much I hold on to my books and how much I love to just go back to my favorites. And even if they have like problematic parts or some tropes that are definitely out of style, the books are like home to me. So it's nice for me to go back and as a writer to read them as well as to see, okay, this book may be dated, but there's still something in here that intrigues me. So what in this storytelling is compelling me to come back to it? And how can I get that quality in my own writing? So it's twofold. I still read it for enjoyment, also nostalgia, but also to still learn how to craft a story. Imagine a bookshelf. It's completely empty, save for one book, When the Stars Leap to You. What are three books you would place next to it? So I feel like this would change depending on my mood and what I'm loving so much at the time. But as of right now, um, Dreamland by Sarah Destin is one of my absolute favorite books. So that would definitely be on the shelf. Um, I just read Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston and there is something about that book that's just magical. The character development and the inner dialogue, plus the super high stakes, it just it works so well for me. And it's funny and delightful. And then Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. It's a book about creativity, and it pushes you to not be afraid of going there in your writing. Or if an idea comes to you, and a lot of times my first instinct is, I don't know if I can pull that off, but that book tells you, no, if the muses are talking to you, you need to take that and run with it because they will move on to another person. And that would be like how I said, oh, I'm going to write a book about this, and then you never write it, and then a year later, the book deal comes out with that same premise by another author because the muses move along. So this book encourages you to embrace that and run with it before it leaves you. So it's a book that teaches me to be brave. So that book definitely needs to be on my shelf all the time just to keep me from slipping back into the comfort zone and pushing me to try new things and be brave because it could work. It could pay off really well. You mentioned one of Sarah Dessen's books. I think I remember Mm -hmm. reading that book because I read a lot of Sarah Dessen when I was a teenager. But I think my favorite of hers is The Truth About Forever. Yes. I don't remember exactly yes. the plot of that book, but I remember being in the bookstore and seeing that title and just being so drawn to that title. I think it was my very first Sarah Dessen book. And then I read a bunch of her other books. And then I saw that movie with Mandy Moore in it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it was called How to Deal. Yes. That's such a throwback. But yeah, she was a big part of my life as a teen. And I just think that's really cool the way why authors are able to really be formative, you know, in a, in a teen's life. And I definitely believe she's one. I have all of her books. I've met her multiple times. And actually this summer I got to see her again and I gave her one of my art. That's so cool. It was so cool. She asked me to sign it for her and I, I 
I, I get tingles still thinking about it because I'm like, she inspired me so much. She kind of put me on a path to saying maybe I should write YA. Her books just really touched me. So to be able to say, look, you did this for me, and this is this is what happened because you inspired me so much. And so I was able to give her a copy and sign it for her. It was a really special moment for me. Cause, you know, my favorite author, my idol for more than a decade, and now she has my book, and I still, like, get tingles thinking about it. I love the line from your bio that says, By night, Ronnie Davis writes contemporary YA about brown girls falling in love. It makes you sound like some kind of superhero. As a writer, was it important for you to define yourself and your writing, and why? What do you want the brown girls reading When the Stars Leave to You to take away from it? Oh, I have so many feelings about this. but So I don't know if I call myself a superhero, but... <laughs> I mean, I like the sentiment. That would be really cool. Um, but I'm someone who loves writing and loves, and I love love stories. So it was really important for me to define myself in my writing. My intention is that my books are read and loved by all. I mean, wouldn't that be the dream, right? Mm-hmm. I know it won't happen, but I still dream about it. I remember how I felt like always looking for myself in books and movies and TV, and I never found her until I was a grown adult. And then it was just such a short thing, but I saw that, like, blip of representation, and I just bawled. I don't want readers who are like me to have to wait till they're adults to see themselves represented in media. I know it's possible to enjoy good stories, even if we don't see ourselves in the characters, because a good writer will make us feel for the characters anyway. And I'd, I'd have been very poorly read if I only read books about people who look like me, because... There were none when I was growing up. There were none. And so because of that, like when I see the feedback from people of dominant groups say that they can't connect to books about black people or queer people or disabled people, it frustrates me because my default has been to read about people who aren't like me. So why can't those people do the same? Why are they relatable, but we aren't? And so all of this kind of stayed in the back of my mind and I guess this is important for me to define myself in my writing because I want people to say oh wait maybe this story is universal too I want people who aren't like me to read and enjoy my books and I've already gotten feedback from readers really good feedback who connected with the book in unexpected ways that was a really nice surprise and I want people to see themselves as deserving of love stories and adventures and fantasies. I want them to see that we're relatable and that our stories are just as universal as the stories from the dominant groups. So adding to that, I'm a sucker for love stories. And that's my first choice of reading is YA love stories, followed by contemporary romance and women's fiction. So there's always, if there's a love story in a book, no matter what the genre, I'm going to be interested. But the problem was that every teen love story or romance, almost everyone was about white girls and by white authors. And the girls with the black girls on the cover always seem to involve gangs or drugs or sports, which is not what I'm into. So I see those books at the library, and I feel bad because I wanted to support these black authors because if they fail, there probably wouldn't be another chance for them or a chance for those of us coming up behind them. But I had no interest in reading those subjects, so I 
put the books back and I feel kind of ashamed because I wonder if there's something wrong with me that I don't want to read about people from my background, even though that really wasn't my background, like, subject-wise. But I feel like I should want to read about black girls, no matter what the story's about. And it never occurred to me that girls of color could have stories outside of, like, the drugs and the sports or slavery or civil rights. Then I picked up Everything, Everything by Nicola Hughes. And uh, I read that book in two hours, and it was a whimsical book. There was a black girl who fell in love, and there's pain in the story, but there was a black girl falling in love, and there was something plaguing her other than just her blackness and the baggage that comes with that. Her race informed who she was, but it wasn't the focal point, and she got to have a different story that the kind of story that's mostly reserved for white characters. And I said, I need more of this. I went out looking for it and just had a really hard time finding it. There's, There are other stories out there, but they're hard to find or they're out of print or they just kind of were a flash in the pan. And I, I want to bring that back. I want to bring these joyful stories back or these stories, these love stories and these adventures. And I'm definitely seeing them have been more the past few years I'm seeing more black authors with fantasies and more black authors with just contemporary stories and maybe coming away from the pain. We need those stories. We need all kinds of stories starring all kinds of people. But we also need fluff. I I wanted to escape. I grew up in a uh, not the greatest neighborhood. Like sometimes I'd hear gunshots outside of my window and things like that. And I wanted to escape from that. I wanted to escape from that and see and read about a girl falling in love, a girl like me finding a boyfriend. Because I think if teens can see these representations, if they can see themselves getting the scholarships, if they can see themselves writing, um, you know, writing the books, if they can see themselves with with the cute boy or the cute girl or whoever, that they can, you know, manifest those things in their own life. Um, well, another thing that happened for me is that when I was in junior high school and in high school, we had shows like A Different World, which was set at a black university. Um, there was a video by TLC that I actually mentioned in my book called Baby, Baby, Baby. The video is set on a college campus and it shows dorm life and just people just hanging out in their dorm and doing their thing. And those two things stick in my head so much because it was occurred to me that there was no way I wasn't going to college because I saw that. I saw that representation. I saw that, saw that this, this could happen for black kids. It was great. So like having these stories, this media and having the support to show these people that they can have these stories too. That was so important to me. And I really wanted to show that in my book and show that as an author. Hopefully when the stars lead to you is a step in that direction. There are these like eras of black cultural production, I guess. And I feel like the eighties was one of those eras with like black television shows. Well, not really there black was television so much shows. In the 80s. Yeah. And then the 90s had a very distinct kind of black cultural production, I think. And I think part of that had to do with like hip hop and like the hip hop generation and people who grew up creating the first rap music before it became like super, super popular, before it became pop culture the way it is now. Yes. 
But ultimately what I'm leading up to is that I think there's like a resurgence of like black writers and black authors and black readers in the YA space right now. And I hope that it's not just a trend. I hope that it's laying the foundations for something that will just be around forever. That will just be the norm. I absolutely agree with you. I feel like there's room for all of our stories. Mm-hmm. And as long as people know about them, because there, I mean, I know, I know, I search for myself in all this media, and I can't be the only one. And I don't believe that I am the only one. So as long as they know it's out there, they can come and get it. I mean, we we're we're creating, we're out here, and you see the success of things like Black Panther, and and. It's, it's, and people want it. And crazy rich Asians, like, people want it. Like, they want it. <laughs> I don't think it's a trend. I do think it's here to stay. I just think that people have to know that it's available and that they can get it and consume it and shout about it, tell their friends, tell their family, and that it can just be like this snowball effect where it just feeds into itself. And I would, I would, love, I would love to see that happen. All right, so now we're going to start talking about the book, which I'm super excited about. A warning to our listeners, we have some spoilers ahead. If you have not yet read the book and you don't want any spoilers, put this on pause now. Grab a copy of the book at your local library or favorite bookstore. Read it and then come back. But if you're fearless and laugh in the face of spoilers, then listen on. One of the characters in When the Stars Lead to You, Ashton, suffers from severe depression. In your author's note, which is so open and so moving, and I was so glad that you included it at uh, the end of the book, and I wanted to thank you for sharing it with us because I think it's a brave thing to do. You explained that you wanted to write a character with depression who's deeply, unquestionably loved, and that definitely comes through in the novel. Oh, good. Yay. But the protagonist of the story is this brilliant heroine. Her name is Devin Kearney. Ashton is her boyfriend. He's the boy she's in love with. Did you make a conscious choice to have Ashton be the one struggling with depression, or is that simply how the story came to you? So this story rolled around in my head for years. Uh, But what I figured out that I wanted Devin and Ashton to have a history before the story started. I needed a compelling reason for him to have ghosted her and for her to be justified in taking him back. I worked a lot of things. I was like, maybe it could be a scandal, maybe blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, no, depression is a real thing. And a lot of teens have it. I have it. Um, And thank you for saying what you did about my note, by the way. I thought... That could be a real reason. Um, I took this from my own experience with depression because I know what it's like to have it take over. And for me, the first thing I want to do is disappear because I feel like a burden that no one wants me around or I don't deserve whatever is good. So I knew that Ashton ghosting Devin would be his way of saying, I don't deserve this girl because I'm a mess up. So I just, I should just go. I should just let her be. And so that is why I had him do it. I also wanted him to be the one with depression because on the outside, he has this perfect life, it looks like. He's a white male. He's handsome. He's wealthy. He travels the world. He drives a really awesome car. And we all know that life isn't as perfect as it seems. Like, we know this intrinsically, but it's hard to believe sometimes. 
So, um, as I said, I'm one of those people who, like, makes up stories about people I see. And I used to be, um, I used to drive through the rich neighborhoods and look at their big houses and wonder, what secrets are they hiding inside? Um, I'm not super religious anymore, but one thing that I remember from my church days is that we would, that was being taught that we would never want to trade the crosses we bear with someone else's cross. I feel like this is true, so I always wonder what sort of crosses are these people in their fancy houses driving their fancy cars are carrying? Because it's on the outside, it's easy to say, "Oh, I want to be rich. I want to live in this big house. I want to, I want to have like four BMWs or whatever." But do I, would I really want to trade places with them? What what are they? What burdens are they carrying, or what secrets do they have that I wouldn't be able to handle or that I would never want? So Ashton's cross is dealing with the expectations of his family and the depression that is, you know, that he inherited from people in his family, but also that's being compounded because he doesn't know if he could live up to what his family wants. Because the stories told in the first person were always with Devin, and she has a really distinct and strong voice. How were you able to convey the realities and the seriousness of Ashton's depression when you didn't have his first-person narration at your disposal? So one thing I did, off, I guess they say off-camera, is that I would write like snippets from his point of view just to get inside his head and to figure out why is he acting like this? Why is he doing what he's doing right now? But... For, from my point of view, from Devin's point of view also, is that in addition to having depression, I also can be quite codependent myself. So it was easy for me to get into Devin's head and feel her emotions and worry because it's something I deal with every single day. And I think also Ashton found that he could trust Devin, so he opened up a lot to her so that he was able to show more of his depression to her than he would show to anyone else. But it was challenging because, as I said earlier, my first instinct when I get into that place is to hide. And in a lot of my first drafts, that's what I had asked to do, where he just kind of hid it, pretended everything was okay, until, like, there was, like, this big thing that kind of came out of nowhere. But a lot of the early feedback from readers is that they needed to see his depression earlier and that it needed to be more intense. So I had to dig deep to pull those emotions out in a way that, they want to seem exploitive or over the top. And so I, I did that. I really wanted to treat it with sensitivity because I know I, I wouldn't want people to exploit what I'm going through just to give ads on Goodreads or whatever. And so um, I really wanted to be a sensitive and carefully handled subject. And um, I'm also in therapy. I've been in therapy for years now, and I worked with her to make sure that I stayed safe while I was exploring the relationship that Ashton had with his depression and with Devin. So yeah, I pulled from a lot of different things, and then I also pulled from some things where I see depressions of, I'm sorry, um, impressions of mental illness that I thought, no, this feels kind of like is exploiting it or it's just thrown in there for shock value or entertainment value. So I learned some things that I didn't want to convey and also how I would feel and how I wanted it to be conveyed. So that, that I think that's, that's how I was able to convey the seriousness of it and also just kind of seeing it from Devin's point of view. I know um, 
she's a lot more grounded than I was as a teenager. <laughs> so I think that me learning from my kind of being in the clouds and kind of just floating through life, I really wanted her to see, like, oh, my gosh, he's really dealing with it. He's really going through it. What can I do to help him? So I wanted to show it through her eyes and the fact that she sees how serious it is and that she wants to do what she can to fix it, even though we know that she can't. I love romance. Mm-hmm. That's something I have in common with you. <laughs> One of the things that kept me reading as a kid was romantic fiction. So when I started in on When the Stars Lead to You, I was ready for an epic love story, and it totally is. But it's not one where Devin and Ashton quote-unquote end up together. In the end, Devin chooses herself, even as she still loves Ashton. In so many stories, love fixes everything. Love overcomes everything. So I wanted to ask you, in fiction, what do you think are the limits of romance? What do you think romance can do and what can't it do? So I want to start off by saying that choosing this ending was really hard for me because I originally wanted them to end up together. You know, I I definitely have that happily ever after craving. So um, I wanted someone who was depressed to get a happy ending. And I wanted the black girl to get a happy ending as well. But um, one of my critique partners, and she, she just for all of her feedback, was just spot on. She's amazing. She floated the idea of Devin not going back to him at this time. And even though I didn't really want to explore it, I, I had to. So I opened up a separate Word document and typed this new ending. And then I emailed her and was like, okay, I guess you were right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whatever. I think in fiction, especially adult fiction, the limits of romance can be pushed quite far. But for teens, I had to be more responsible. So um, in general, I feel that females are, since females are socialized to nurture and to sacrifice themselves to lift up their male partners. And this is another, some more baggage that I've brought over from my church days where I was taught Jesus first, for everyone else second myself last. And while I revised the book, I realized I needed to subvert that teaching, even if it was just for my own sake. Because that putting yourself last all the time, you know, this was before the era of self-care Sunday and face masks and all that good stuff. So I, I knew that always putting myself last and telling myself my feelings and thoughts weren't important, that what I wanted wasn't important because I had to be there for everyone else. It was exhausting. It couldn't help with my depression. And it doesn't make me a good mother, a good partner, a good worker, a good writer. So I had to subvert that even for my own sake and kind of make peace with, you know what? It doesn't have to be this way. I can take care of myself and also take care of the people I love. Devin sees her parents having their own epic love story, and she wants that for herself, but her vision becomes skewed, and because Ashton left her before, she's scared that he's going to go away again. So she's willing to do almost everything to hold on to it and willing to give up so much to make things the way she thinks they should be. So um, she realizes just in time how much she's ready to give up. And I needed to show her coming to that 
and choosing her future and her dreams despite loving him so much. Because I want readers to see that they can love someone fiercely, but that it's okay to love themselves first. It's okay for them to chase their own dreams and to pursue them and to have someone on the side. And it's okay, like, to maybe step away from that relationship if it's taking over what you want and to step away to let him heal, let him go through his journey so that she can, you know, take care of herself, do her genes and become the astrophysicist she's meant to be. I really needed to show that, especially for a teen novel, that, yeah, it's okay to step away and put yourself first, especially as a teen, because you're your own person right now and you're developing and you're growing and this kind of shapes who you're going to be down the road. As for romance and fiction, I feel like it can show so many things. It can give us so much. It shows hope when things are bleak. It shows devotion and loyalty and sacrifice. And it, it's definitely an escape from the ugliness in the world. Even if there are, like, problems in the book, if there are issues, if there are societal issues, there's still, like, at the core, there's this love story and these people are going to make it work. And no matter what, and they end up making it work even when they have their dark moments. Like, you know that the happily ever ever is coming and the journey is, the joy is in their journey of trying to figure out how are they going to get there? How are they going to get from this time when they feel like the world is ending and we can never be together to happily ever after? So I feel like romance gives us kind of that hope and that escape and that complexity because there's so many different ways you can make that story happen. I don't think it can change your partner. And if you're having issues with your partner, I don't think it can make you less resentful of your partner. Uh, I don't think it can fix everything, but it can definitely be an escape from this world, which is always on fire anymore. When I was in acting class so many years ago, I learned that theater is a heightened sense of reality. And I feel like this is actually the case for all storytelling mediums. They can't be a blueprint for the messiness of real life. And I think that is where you have to take from romance is that it can't be a blueprint for the messiness of real life, for the messiness of real people, because ultimately you're going to be disappointed and you're going to be hurt and it's going to cause problems. As far as Ashton and Devin not ending up together for now, I feel like it took me a while to get there, but I think it was the right right decision because they both, have some growing and healing to do before they can think of a future together. In my mind, they are married with four kids, but they have a while to go before they get there. So your title, When the Stars Lead to You, I started this book and I was like, oh, this is this is going to be so, like, this is going to be the perfect summer romance book. Like, they fall in love on the beach, like, they're going to be together. And then my boss actually has had already read the book. She read it, like, way back when and she was just looking at me and she was like you you have some you have a long way to go um (laughs) and when I finished the book I I was like looking at the cover with that beautiful cover with Devin sitting on the beach with her hair and that beautiful typesetting um Mm -hmm. and it's when the stars lead to you and I was thinking oh the you isn't Ashton which is what I started the book thinking out it's Devin and I and just thought that was really cool. If you know who's really on cool. the cover, she's in the cover. She's in the O. Yeah. I think that's really cute, but I also think it's really deep. I like it. They did such a good job on that cover. I I saw it. I was at my 
desk and I saw the the, the first draft, like the comp, and I met my desk and I was working a temp job at the time and my boss IMs me. She's like, How are you today? And I'm like, I'm crying. She's like, Oh no, is everything okay? I said, I just saw like the, the treatment for my book cover for the first time and I'm freaking out. It was and then when I saw the final, I was at another temp job and I was crying at my desk again. I they capture I feel like they captured the essence of the story so well. They captured exactly where it's going and then the colors. It's mm-hmm. all my aesthetic. It's mm-hmm. all my aesthetic. I they couldn't have done done a better job. And I couldn't have dreamed of a better cover. When I was reading the book, I remember all the descriptions of Devin's hair. And like mm-hmm. every time I would come up to one of those descriptions, I would just flip back to the cover and I was always so like surprised but also happy that they got the right like picture for the cover. Like they got the like that's that is her hair. Like the way I imagined it is exactly how it looked on the cover. So I just really like that. I did too. And I do the same thing. Like, not necessarily with my book, but with all the books. I always flip back to the cover and look at the picture. When the Stars Lead to You deals with some serious subjects. Depression, racism and microaggressions, class divides. But I wouldn't describe it as a heavy book. It's propulsive and incredibly immersive. An old boss of mine would have called it unputdownable. How did you manage that? Well, first of all, thank you so much for saying that. Um, that that's that's one of the highest compliments one could get. Is that you didn't want to put it down? Yes, I love it. So um, I had a lot of help with that part. Um, my amazing editor Nikki Garcia. And um, some wonderful critique partners, um, I had some mentors, they helped me with the pacing and attention because as I said before, I was a panther, so I really flew by the seat of my pants writing the story, just throwing everything I thought she should have. And then um, and my one critique partner, the, the really good one who had me do the, all, the, the ending that you see now, um, she was really good at helping me like tighten the book and get that tension going. One of our biggest jokes is no touching um, from like Arrested Development Mm -hmm. because there are a lot of times where she would just put in the book, don't make them touch. You have to make the reader be desperate for them to touch and to keep reading for them to touch. So there's a lot of times when she would like touch her hand or she would touch his face. And my critique partner was like, no, take this out. You have to leave. You have to make the characters really want it and long for it. And you have to make the reader long for it. So I feel like all these little tweaks like that really helped tighten the tension and also ground helped ground it so that people kept reading because they want that payoff. And I think that's part of what what helps pacing and tension. It's so I feel like those things mean different things to different people, and I. I mean, I worked so hard just trying to get that right because it was a challenge when when you don't plot right away and it's like, okay, how can I rearrange this story, this structure, so that people want to keep going? So, yeah, I definitely had help with with all these people who helped me with all these little things. But another thing, too, like as far as the immersion, is that I love the characters so much and I love living in their world, so I wanted my readers to love being in their world as well. 
and I wanted to make sure they never wanted to leave. So I tried to make like, yeah, it's this like quirky little town that's kind of inspired by Stars Hollow from Gilmore Girls, where they have like the gazebo in the middle of town and the ice cream shop and every everyone kind of knows each other, but and then they know like there's the mysterious house behind the gate where Ashton lives with his family where there are people who kind of know about him, at least the people who are tuned into that society stuff. But it's not as like kind of in each other's business as much as in Gilmore Girls. So I just, I love, I love being in the Gilmore Girls world. So I wanted people to have that same feeling when they read my book that I love being in this world. I want to stay in this world. Now I want to know what happens to the people in this world and what they're like and their little idiosyncrasies and things like that. So I think that those things helped is that having so much fun world building. I mean, I had just such a great time building this world, building the school. And I just researched a bunch of different private schools and kind of cobbled together my perfect scenario for a private school. And then I researched like Stars Hollow and I researched like what I like from living in Chicago and from Columbus, Ohio, where I spent a great deal of my life, just all my favorite parts of all these places, and just giving it like a kind of a old New England kind of feel, because for some reason, even though I've never really been there, I'm obsessed with New England, <laughs> and I just really wanted people to enjoy being in that world, because I loved it, I love that world so much. So all those little things, I think, helped give it that unput downable feeling, which I feel weird saying. I feel like I'm bragging about my own book. <laughs> Again, I had so much help. I had a lot of help and a lot of good feedback that really helped me shape the story. In the book, Ashton's parents disapprove of him and Devin dating. And let me just stop myself here and say that that is one of my favorite tropes. Like, I love parental disapproval. Moving on. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> they want him to date someone white and rich like they are. That's such a horrifying thing to face. And, like, as an adult reading this book, I was so scared for Devin. I was scared for her for two reasons, and I think this is the tension you were talking about or part of the tension you were talking about before. One was that I was like, you're such a brilliant student. You're so driven. You're so smart. You're so lucky to know what you want to do with your life and what you want to be at such a young age and to have already taken the steps to get to that. And I was so scared that she was so in love with this boy and getting pulled into his world that she was going to lose that. If that had happened, I would have been devastated. It was such a relief at the end of the book when when she didn't lose that. So even though it's not like a traditional happy ending, although I do think that there's potential that they could get back together because I'm an optimist when it comes to romance. But (laughs) even though they don't get together at the end, it's still like a happy ending for Devin. I was so happy for her. And I was so excited for her because, and I think she says this, I think she has a line where she's like, my life is going to be like epic or something like that. And I was like, yes, it is. I was so excited for her. But the other way I was scared for her was that she's she's a mixed girl, she's a black girl, and she was being subjected to some really scary things. And I know teens, I know people of color, teens of color, black and brown kids are subjected to these things in real life, 
But for me, like, experiencing it in real life is just like, oh, yeah, this is my life. But then, like, either watching it on TV or, like, reading about it in a book, like, in that heightened, fictionalized world, mm-hmm. it was just like, oh, my God, please, please, please don't let, like, anything bad happen to her. Please don't let this, like, adult woman saying these horrible things to her, like, affect her in a way that's going to make her feel like she's less of a human being, you know? Yes. And on one hand, I was really scared. And on the other hand, I was really grateful because Devin is so strong. Like, she's stronger than I could ever be. Like, some of the things... I know, right? Yeah. (laughs) Her Um, strength, if I had half her strength as a teenager... (laughs) Yeah, like, even as an adult, like... Yeah, I wouldn't want to like go through some of the things that she goes through in this book. But yeah, I was really scared for her for those two reasons. But back to the question. I think I interrupted the question. No worries. I love it. Yeah. So that's such a horrifying thing to face. Not just like your boyfriend's parents not approving of you, but not approving of you for those really specific reasons. Like who you are. Like yeah. your race and your your class. How did you approach writing the confrontation between Devin and Ashton's mom? Because I feel like it's such a delicate thing. It was it was a tricky thing. Um, for Ashton's mom, I had to put myself in her shoes and not make her a cookie-cutter villain, which was a challenge. And I, I had to do some research. And I'm a mom of a teenager myself, of a teenage son, so I had to put myself in that situation as far as, you know, as when, when he starts to think about dating. So I had to think about what she wanted and why, rather than to make her just another thing to stand in Ashton Devin's way. So it helped me as a writer soften towards her in that mom-related thing, even though, like, I would never, like, say anything to, like, one of Aiden's girlfriends. So, but as a mother, I can see how Mrs. Edwards will be wondering, like, who is this girl and what does she want with my very wealthy son? Especially since it comes out that Mrs. Edwards you know, knew who Devin was, like, even before Ashton met her. So I wanted to approach it that this woman wants to protect her legacy and she wants to protect her family, like, first and foremost, because she doesn't know this girl. She doesn't know what she's after, really. So she wants to say, you know what, we have this wealth, we have this empire, and we ha- I have to make sure that it stays okay. Which, it sounds superficial, but on a smaller scale, isn't that what we all do And when, when we take care of our family? We're trying to protect our legacies and continue our legacies. So the rich and white girl is Rochelle. She's, she's Ashton's ex-girlfriend. Um, she's an old family friend. So she's vetted, and they know that she's not after the fortune because she has her own fortune. And the fact that she's white shows that confirmation bias on Mrs. Edwards' part because she's more in, she's more willing to trust someone who looks like her over someone so different who Devin is. Devin's side also comes from personal experience because I've always dated outside my race and I've had had parents disapprove of me. And that hurt, it still lingers. It's been decades probably, yeah, decades. And it's still, I still think about it and I still get so mad because I'm like, how how dare you say these things or feel these things about me? You never never even tried to get to know me because, or you let your perceptions that you've already had of me color like color your impressions of me from the beginning. So you were never going to accept me or whatever. And so having that experience 
like coming from both those ways helped me approach this confrontation. And also, like, just to say, Mrs. Edwards is coming from this part of saying, I want my son to make good decisions because he's a kid. He doesn't really know better. But I also want to protect and make sure that he's not going to spend all our money or whatever. And then also being inside Devin's head, like, knowing Devin's not that kind of person. Devin doesn't want his money. She doesn't want his family's money. She just wants to be with the boy she loves. So juggling those two points of view, it was really challenging, but it was also one of the most fun scenes to write, even though it was maddening. And I think it was because it got out a lot of the the resentment that I had carried over the years, having experienced that myself, but also helping me step into the other side and say, okay, I kind of get it. They were still jerks, but I kind of get it. It was, it was a lot of fun. And then just, I didn't want her to be like this one-dimensional, <laughs> like evil witch. Rah, rah, rah. I, I really wanted her to be like this complicated person who has her own wants and her own desires and her own agency in the book. I wanted to end with a focus on Devin. She's someone who feels things strongly. She's a really hard worker, and she's driven and fiercely intelligent. How did this character come to you? Did she change at all over the course of your writing her? Devin, um, she came to me after years of false starts. I mean, at one point she was named Kennedy, and I was like, when I read that really old draft, I'm like, no, she's not a Kennedy. Um, I knew I wanted a character who was biracial and who had awesome hair, because I love curly hair. I needed someone who had big dreams and wasn't afraid to chase them and catch them. But I didn't want things to come too easily to her. I wanted readers to know that she works her butt off to get where she is. Um, She does have some privilege. She has loving parents. She's a middle-class lifestyle. And she gets to attend this wealthy private school. Her best friend is loaded and she spoils her. Her parents will do anything for her. So she definitely has a lot of privilege, but that doesn't mean she doesn't work hard. And I don't want her to ever give the impression that she feels like things are owed to her that she feels like, I could lose this. I need to work hard so I don't lose this. Um, I don't know if she changed much over the course of me writing her, but I do know that some of the choices I had her make in earlier drafts were, weren't the greatest, that she was even more codependent back then. And, and that's because one of the things that I didn't want her to be too perfect, I didn't want her to be like this Mary Sue character. I wanted her to be flawed and real, but I may have made her too flawed, so I had to fix that. (laughs) So I had to come back and give her more of her strength and more of her fierceness, and also to kind of say, yeah, she's a romantic, but she's also a scientist. So she's going to say, okay, how am I going to make this work? Let me get out the spreadsheets. Let me make some tables. Let me do some calculations. So I, I really needed to find that balance to give her that how far am I willing to go to try to keep what I keep both things I want is it possible how can I make it happen and if it's not possible then what do I do so uh, I think that that was definitely the biggest change that I had is having her be more balanced in that way instead of being too scientific or too romantic she needed to be she needed to have both those personalities displayed prominently and they had to inform every decision that she made and why she 
chose the things she did. Thank you so much for this discussion. Thank you for having me. I can always talk about my book, so. Of course. Um, <laughs> this was great. It was really fun to learn more about Devin and learn more about Ashton and about how you were able to make it all come together. Thank you. I still, I read it and I'm like, wow, how did I do this? <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, thank you so much for joining us. When the Stars Lead to You comes out on November 12th, so make sure to mark your calendars. You can find Ronnie Davis on Twitter at at Lil Rongal, that's L-I-L-R-O-N-G-A-L, and you can always find us on Twitter at at LB School.